Welcome to Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical, non-experts taking an unreasonably deep dive into this week's health news. And this week's words are Zap, Max Heart, Vitamin Supplements, Five Minutes. Five Minutes? Five Minutes. <laughs> Max Heart. Oh, is Max Heart going to be like Max Heart Rate? I bet it is. Yeah. Mm. Yep. You're very smart. Okay. Well. I was trying to trick you, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, you can't because I'm really, I'm really based on how my voice sounds on my A game today. So watch out. Absolutely. <laughs> Robin Donovan in the house. Mm. <laughs> That's rough. All right. What's our first story? So our first story comes from Science Alert and it's scientists fixed people's working memory with simple electron electrical zaps to the brain. <laughs> There's nothing simple about a zap so, to the brain. No, I mean it was just like a gentle a gentle little zap. Mm-hmm. So it was it's a non-invasive electrostimulant to boost working memory in older people which effectively gives 70-year-olds the thinking abilities of their 20-year-old selves temporarily. So they were looking at some older people. They had 42 people who were young between 29 and 20 and 29. Oh no. Uh, so we're no longer young, Robin. Ouch. <laughs> And 42 older adults, 60 to 76, and they were given memory tasks in which they had to identify the differences between the images that they were shown. Um, predictably, the older people were not as strong um, at it as the younger, um, but they um, did uh, low-frequency rhythms called thea rhythms that synced up with faster high-frequency gamma rhythms in the prefrontal and temporal areas of the brain, which is where working memory is. Um, And then they did that, and the results gave them younger brains. Yeah, okay. I actually kind of... 25 minutes of stimulus. Yeah, I kind of understand what this is because um, it's it's similar to a concept in music where basically, like, if you take two sound waves and you put them... So that their their peak amplitude doesn't overlap, then the waves beat together and it's like dissonant. But if the waves overlap, then you can um, you amplify like it's almost like they combine, and that's how you get like harmony basically. And that might I'm not sure if I'm sciencing that right, but but this sounds like the same thing. It's basically like you you combine two waveforms, then you can maximize the the peak amplitude that they reach so it's like harmony versus dissonance and actually music has this really cool thing where if the sound waves are perfectly aligned and perfectly in tune and you're playing like a chord that's like one three five one if you are familiar with music at all then sometimes you can hear nope (laughs) we'll say it's like the 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 tonic note the root of the chord a third above it a fifth above it and an, oct- and an octave above it, so like C, E, G, C, then sometimes you can even hear like the tenth above that, but even though no one's playing it, because it's so well in tune that you're getting that the the sound waves are, I don't know if combining is the right word, but you're getting this extra harmony that comes out. So here, they're basically talking about brain waves, and they're saying if they sync up 
these theta rhythms with the gamma rhythms, then it's almost like you're getting you're, you're getting that extra boost, basically. So. Yeah. So it lasts for about 50 minutes. Um, and more research is obviously required, but it's a, <laughs> it's an exciting new step. Um, and they're kind of looking at how it could be used to help people with uh, memory issues, especially with our aging population. It also was effective for people who were in their 20s who were scoring low on the um, test as well. So um, they're thinking uh, possible uh, outcomes for it that could be applied to, um, you know, dementia or um, some cognitive um, challenges that people might have. So further research required. Okay. But... (laughs) but like a thing happened (laughs) so that's exciting right like Mm -hmm. we're like excited that a thing happened (laughs) yeah well there's a lot of like stuff about like like 10 years ago like they started looking at deep brain stimulation for really severe treatment resistant depression so i think this will become a technique that's more and more used because what you know a million years ago we were just electroshocking people and we still are although more gently than we used to but we so we know that like electrical stimulus change can change the function of the brain and damage the brain and stimulate the brain and so it's all a matter of like how well you do that because there's even stuff where they like drill a hole through your skull and they put in a tiny like electrode to do something like really really specific the the question is like what's the long-term outcome of that like you know and how how do you how do you stimulate the right thing? So, right. And this is this is only temporary. It didn't create like a permanent fix. So, twenty five minutes for fifty minutes of cognitive boost. So, <laughs> so, so every twenty minutes you just zap yourself. No big deal. That's probably fine. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Have <laughs> did you ever watch uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch from the aughts? Yeah. <laughs> I watched all of, like, the series. It was amazing. Wow. Um, but I remember, so, like, Sabrina isn't allowed to tell her boyfriend because he's mortal that she's a witch, right? So, like, that's a, like, common theme. And, like, there was a, there was, like, an episode in which they had to, like, they were voting on whether or not they are going to vote. And it was, like, whether or not they could, like, tell mortals that they were witches or whatever right was like one of the issues and so like sabrina was like super excited to vote and she didn't feel like she was smart enough and so she used like this magic like temporary like string that you put through between your ears and it made you smart for like a second (laughs) and um zelda no uh heidi and not Anne zelda the other one like used it and then they weren't able to vote because like it makes you dumber after you stop using it. And that's oh, no. what I thought of when I read this article. I thought of Sabrina the Teenage Witch and how, like, uh, that is really just, like, so cutting edge. Like, it predicted this stuff, like, 20 <laughs> years ago. Right. <laughs> so I was just, like, imagining, like, people walking around, like, hold on, before I take this test, let me let me zap my head. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. So what's our next story? 
So our next story comes from CNN.com, and it's how to find your max heart rate for exercise. Oh, so I know, it's like this. talking about it's talking about like your Fitbit and your smartwatch can tell you like all these different things, but like what are you supposed to do? So the optimal rate for exercise depends on your exercise goal, your age, and current fitness level. Um. Heart rate and exercise intensity share a direct linear relationship. The more intense the exercise, the higher rate your heart rate will go. I don't know if you know this, Robin. Yeah, you know, I figured that out. (laughs) Um, So uh, your resting heart rate can vary quite a bit, um, but it's between around 60 to 80 beats beats per minute is um, common for adults. And if you're more athletic, the more the more likely that your heart your resting heart rate will be lower, um, because it has something called like the athlete's heart, where like your heart grows and gets stronger, and so it's able to pump more effectively yeah. without it. So basically, like calculate. every heartbeat squishes more blood out into your body. I don't think squishes is the exactly. right word. <laughs> right. So the maximum heart rate is a formula, um, which is uh, 208 minus uh, your age times 0.7. So uh, that would make my maximum heart rate 184.6. What? Yours is or higher than that. An 80, a 45 is, uh, no, uh, 177. Okay, I mean, no, I mean, that's close. Maximum heart rate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, here's the, here's the deal on this stuff. Like, one, it's, like, really hard to tell because, like, like, what? The way that they, they're like, oh, here's the way that you calculate it. Like, you can get on a treadmill and da, 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 da. But, like, what what are the odds that you're really going all out when you're going all out? You know what I mean? Like I got, right. I got tested last year to make sure that everything was okay when I was like having a really drawn out fist fight with bronchitis. And I definitely in subsequent workouts have exceeded what they told me my maximum heart rate was, although not by much, right? Like they, that was pretty close. So but I'm going to tell you. My maximum heart rate is not 184 CNN, right? Do you like how my ego just completely came into this? This podcast is all about me now. <laughs> <laughs> of, of course. You always talk smack to our articles. It's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> always overreact to something small in the article. Well, and the other thing is like this article is talking about how it it's not bad for you to like – go all out. It's not bad for you to like reach your max heart rate. And that's true. It's not bad for you, but it's like a small doses type of thing. Like it's not bad for you in mm-hmm. general, but you really don't want to do that every day. And you don't even want to do like if it's you, you want to hang out. Yeah. Like if you do a workout where you hit your max heart rate, you want to hit it and like not stay there for super long. Cause that, because mm-hmm. at a certain point you're increasing like your risk of all sorts of like damage and stuff like this is just common sense right it's a lot of stress yeah Yeah, absolutely 
So it also included in this article is the WHO's recommended um, guidelines for accumulating 150 hours of exercise per week. Minutes. Regular, minutes. Encouraging regular physical activity. <laughs> minutes. 150 so minutes per day, per week. Although if you can do 150 hours of exercise per week, please drop everything and send us an email. We'd love to interview you on the podcast. <laughs> Man. So if you want to be interviewed, you can email us at <laughs> hello at the bad com. Okay. Good. Awesome. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, listen, I'm just over here looking at my Garmin Connect app, trying to figure out if I can find my maximum heart rate, but it's not telling me like it's not that's not one of the things that it tracks because uh garmin doesn't want you to go try to kill yourself but fair new high score (laughs) (laughs) garmin's like hey don't die don't die oh man yeah so you have like uh, a thing that tracks that so yeah do you find that helpful with your like resting heart rate and I mean when you're exercising <laughs> to ensure that you're exercising to your full amount. Yeah, I definitely I mean I use the Garmin and this is not a Garmin ad for God's sake, but I use it to like keep track of like what zones I'm in and so I can kind of tell you know how much rest I'm gonna need or if I feel a certain way and then I like I'll I'll look at the ex- the exercise I did the day before to be like, oh does that make sense? Because, like, at a certain point in training, there's, like, like what what I understand from, like, listening to other people who are experts is that, like, when you take time Wait, off. Wait, you're not an expert? No. <laughs> God, no. So you take time off when, <laughs> when you are unexpectedly fatigued. So at a certain point, you would accumulate a certain training load. And it's like, well, you're supposed to be tired. But if you're, like, not doing anything and you feel tired, that's when you, like, need to take some time off, basically. Gotcha. But basically, like, if I do a race, I might be in zone five for, like, all of it. I just learned that this year. Like, I wasn't sure if I, when, if that would be okay. Are the zones? Oh. <laughs> well, there's like, there's, like, there's, like, different ways of calculating it, right? Like, so depending on who you ask, like, some people do four zones. Some people do five. Some people do six. But um, five, four or five is pretty common. And it's based on a percentage of your of your maximum. So, okay, I'm trying to see if I can find it. Where my heart rate at? Where it be? Where it go? Okay, so yeah, <laughs> so I ran a race, right? <laughs> my mm-hmm. my average heart rate was 181. My maximum was 205. And and I realize that the watch may not be perfectly measuring, right? Right. Um, yeah. And so so for me, um, zone one goes up to one forty. Zone two is roughly like one forty one to one fifty two. So zone three is like in the one fifties. Zone four is in the one sixties. Zone five is like over one seventy one. So mm-hmm. that race was ninety eight percent in zone five, and then like two percent in zone four, meaning like. That I was, like, tanked for, like, days, right? Like, took a couple yeah. days off. And then when I came back, it was, like, super slow. So 
And that's something I only recently realized. Like, I used to think I needed to do my races in zone four, but, like, I had a friend who was like, you know, and she talked to me about, like, running tends to make your heart rate run higher than, like, cycling, even if the perceived exertion, which is an important metric, is the same. So perceived exertion is, like, how hard do you Mm -hmm. think it is? So a lot of people can tell, Mm -hmm. like, you'd probably tell what heart rate you're in just by, like, how you feel. Like, one is every day. Two is, like, start like walking fast around the mall or something. Three is, like, starting to lose your breath and having to, like, slow down. Like, if you were talking, like, having to kind of start to slow down. Four is, like, cannot talk. And five is, like, <sighs> like kind of a thing. So um, – Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So there's, like – there's also, like, when you're in different races of different distances, you can do different – Zone. So if you're doing an Ironman, most people are like in zone two because it takes so long. Like most people cannot sustain mm. like 12 hours of cardio in zone four. So if you're doing like a 5K, that better be zone five. And then like what I haven't figured out yet is like where where do I need to like be for certain things? Like I know I can do an event that's like three to three and a half hours in zone four and that's fine. I don't know if I could do that in zone five. Like right. So the, right, so the race mm-hmm. I ran was like less than two hours i forget how much time it took me it was like a it was like nine miles and it took me i don't have any idea it was a 15k is that nine miles (laughs) why would i know that (laughs) yeah so it took me like a little funny yeah so it's 9.3 miles it took me a little under an hour and a half so now i know like zone five for nine for 90 minutes, fine. But like, totally fine. Yeah. The question is, zone five for how long is fine? You know, like, I right. bet, I bet over two, mm-hmm. over two hours, I would really like be on the struggle bus with that. So, but who knows? Who knows? So that is your gigantic tangent. And really, if you're at home and you're just like, what do I do? Probably two days a week where you hit zone five at all is like plenty and just, I don't even know. Like, just don't even, you know, you need more, you need more rest than most people think. Right. That makes sense. Got to rest the heart. Mm -hmm. So, all right. What's this, what's this vitamin thing that you got happening with us here? So our next story comes from NBCnews.com and it's vitamin supplements do not help People live longer, study fine. So it's looking at dietary supplements and it's showing that they don't extend life and they might actually shorten if taken at high levels. Um, According to researchers that reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine, they were looking at nutrition um, from food sources and uh, it's from looking at it showing that the people who took um, supplements rather than like eating healthy didn't live longer. So diet and exercise oh. still fucking important. <laughs> yeah. But like, this is dumb because I like, what I want to see is if supplements help or don't help if you have a healthy diet, like, I don't know. I see. I don't, I don't agree with this headline. While they participated, the participants filled out 24 hour food, um, questionnaires twice, and then they did a household interview, and then they 
um, answered whether they had used dietary supplements in the last 30 days. And then if they did, they asked them what they took and how often. Mm-hmm. So um, 38.3% of the people said that they took multivitamin or mineral supplements. Hmm. Oh, my God. I love it. Look at the um, next paragraph. Supplement users were more likely to... More likely than others to be of higher levels of income, family income, higher levels of education, eat a healthy diet, and be physically active. Hmm. Those factors are already known to reduce mortality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I don't feel like this study – I haven't – I mean, here I am just, like, skimming through, right? But, yeah, like – it hasn't really added much. Like we already knew, we've known for a long time that it's better to get your vitamins and your nutrients from food rather than from supplements. But the question is, if you're trying your best, like if you're doing well and then you take a multivitamin, does it help or not? Because they keep, they keep, they keep telling us like, it's, it's better to get it from food. Like we already know that that's not new. Yeah. Well, still got to eat healthy and exercise. Taking oh a multivitamin God. won't cure your bad, bad, healthy, your bad eating habits, your bad healthy habits. <laughs> That's right, Robin. It won't help you. <laughs> well, the thing is, no. It the, got published. No, no. Yeah, it got published. Like, oh, I know. Okay. <laughs> it got published, but like my question is, like, no, they don't know if taking a multivitamin helps me, right? So I would say I exercise and I eat pretty healthfully. And no one really knows if someone like me should take a multivitamin or not, like if it has any benefit or not. Like we just don't know because they keep studying like and letting us know like it's better to get nutrients from food. I'm like, yeah, great. But like, for example, my iron's been low like a million times because like I just don't eat enough food or enough of the right foods. And so in my mind, I'm like a multivitamin is almost like an insurance policy where I'm like filling in any potential gaps. Now you could argue that like packaging all the nutrients together is certainly going to like block some, like there are some vitamins that like when taken with others, it makes it harder for them to absorb. Like that's just the way that it is. But I mean, I don't have time to figure out 26 different pills and blah, blah, blah. So like I'm doing my best here and I just feel like they keep doing these studies and not giving me the information that I want. And the only interesting thing that they found in this study which they should have talked more about is that the people taking the multivitamins are the people who need them the least. I think that is the most interesting thing that they found. Right? Like, yes. I love that. I mean, it makes sense though, right? Like if you, if you think that health and supplements and vitamins are important, then you're probably also eating them in real life in a substantial way as well. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it makes sense. It just, I just thought you would really appreciate this, that you can't cheat your way. You can't cheat your way in. Oh, thanks. Because what I've been doing is just eating like Honey Nut Cheerios and Gushers fruit snacks and taking a multivitamin. I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So you're welcome, Robin. Thank you so much. (laughs) Good to know. Happy to help. Oh, my God. I just don't even like... Someone just needs to, like, reach out to people who need vitamin supplements and be like, hey, you know, like people that don't eat produce. Mm -hmm. They need our help. 
Also, like, yeah, also, I, like, eat I do. your produce, for God's sake. Every time I travel, every time I travel, I'm struck by the fact that no one seems upset but me that we're not getting adequate fruit intake. And it really bothers me. Like, it's almost impossible when you're traveling, if you're eating in restaurants, to get fruit, like, in a healthy way. It's It's like... Unless you eat three servings of fruit at breakfast, which is kind of hard on the gut. Like, it's, it's like impossible. Or you have to go, mm-hmm. you have to go like way out of your way and eat like very sad looking bananas. And it just, it just, I don't get it. But no one, no one else has ever expressed even 1% frustration about this. And I'm always just like, where is the fruit? Like, we're supposed to be eating three to five servings. Like, that means you would have to eat fruit at basically every meal. Mm-hmm. Also, some of us like fruit and would like to have some when we're traveling. So, eat the fruit. Absolutely. <laughs> Love it. All right. You ready for our last article? It comes from Science Daily, and it's a novel five-minute workout improves blood pressure, may boost brain function. So, this is looking at whether or not a five minutes a day without lifting a single weight, jogging a single step, or could reduce your heart attack risk um, and help you think more clearly and boost your sports performance. So it's looking at the preliminary results from a clinical trial from uh, in, in, Inspiratory Muscle Strength Training, IMST, Um. And it's looking like that could help you be better at all things. Um, so it's a basic strength training that uses the muscles you breathe in with. Um, so it's like trying to breathe into a, breathe out of a straw that's sucking in. So it makes it more challenging. Um, it's used to wean critically ill people off of ventilators. And it's oh, like a whole, it's uh, like a by, incentive spirometer, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's like trying to suck suck hard on a straw while it sucks back. That's how it's described. Yeah, there's like um, a... There's so they like had a, patients... Yeah, okay. Um, they had patients perform a 30-minute low-resistance regimen daily to boost their lung capacity. Um, and then they had... Um, just the 30 inhalations... Uh, per day with greater resistance could help um, sufferers from obstructed from sleep apnea. Mm. Uh, and they were able to, and, and then another thing that just showed is that their um, blood pressure was down. Wow. And they did that. So more research is required, <laughs> but um, Every story. it's also something that some like cyclists and runners have already begun to use commercially um, yeah. available muscle trainers to, get, to get it like competitive edge. So yeah. I thought you might've heard of this. Yes. Kind of um, I haven't, I haven't heard of like the thing that they're using being used by athletes, but I actually have used, I have used this, um, when I was a musician and doing a lot of trumpet playing, we used incentive spirometers, which are, it's like, it's like it's like tubes that attach to a little box and there's like a plastic ball in it and as you breathe one way i think as you breathe out the ball goes up and so we used to kind of use them holding them up upside down so they're supposed to be practice for people breathing in we use them to practice 
forcefully breathing out, right? Like how fast can you expel the air in your lungs with a little resistance on that type of thing? Um, mm-hmm. Which really tanked me on a medical test once. I had to like do something where you're – it was like measuring like peak lung flow or I, I don't know what you call it, output or something. And like the tech could not believe – He's like, yeah, just breathe, you know, breathe out as fast as you can until all the air is out of your lungs. And it was supposed to last eight seconds. And in like three seconds, I was like, I'm done. And he's like, you have to keep breathing out. And I'm like, well, I can I can either breathe out over eight seconds and expel all the air from my lungs, or I can expel all the air from my lungs as quickly as possible, which takes me about three to four seconds. I cannot do both. And the guy was like, he made me do it like eight times. And I guess we finally got a reading, but I swear I almost cried because I could tell he was getting frustrated. And I was like, I'm not lying. I'm not screwing this up on purpose. You're, you've given me like an impossible task because I happen to have like, this is like a weird thing that I like, this is a skill that I have. This is, a, I have a particular set of skills. <laughs> right. So the guy was like, unfortunately, it's blowing out really fast. And the guy was like <laughs> super frustrated. Anyway, so I've done a little bit of this and I also know of, um, athletes who wear these masks that decrease airflow so it looks like if you've ever seen someone do vo2 max testing or treadmill testing where they put the thing over their face you know you can buy a mask Mm -hmm. that just um it basically it, it simulates like working out at altitude by limiting the amount of airflow you're getting while you're while you're breathing so so they look like bane on a bike basically (laughs) <laughs> and people do this to like simulate different training conditions. And I I think it's all a bit much. All right. I think it's all a bit much. But God, in Portland, we even have like gyms. Like there's a gym that has an altitude room that like limits the amount of oxygen in the room so that it's like, it's like you're at, and they'll tell you like today you're at 7,500 feet. I do work out at this place, but I do not use the altitude room. But I, if it was free, I probably would. Anyway. So yeah, like a lot of people, a lot of people are experimenting with, with this kind of thing. And you'll know, you'll see like professional runners who go to like Colorado and they sleep at a really high altitude and then they train at like, like five, like they'll sleep at like 9,000 feet and then they train at like five or 6,000 feet for some reason. That's a thing. So yeah, definitely Mm -hmm. like athletes have gotten in on this, but what I think is interesting here is less the athletic implications and more the implications for people that aren't active at all and that five minutes of this could lower your blood pressure which is a huge problem for a lot mm-hmm. of older people who don't have the physical capacity to work out so i right. am pumped yeah so I what mean, is your current medical fascination okay <laughs> so glad you asked you know how some foods have like natural flavors or artificial flavors yes i have been wondering yes like I guess I assumed that natural flavors just meant nothing, like that it just was like a bunch of chemicals and they were just completely BSing me. And so I looked it up um, and there's this cool article from the New York Times from February called Are Natural Flavors Really Natural? And um, they found that food manufacturers are basically adding natural flavorings to almost everything, like Things that you would not even think, like tea and like vanilla ice cream. Like, why do they need it? So, basically, New York Times says government regulations define natural flavors as those that derive their smell or their flavor 
from plant and animal sources. So that could be like animals, produce, plants, like bark, anything. Mm-hmm. That are th- mm-hmm. but these but these items are then, as they're saying, distilled, fermented, or otherwise manipulated in a lab. So, thus, the difference from artificial flavors is obvious. But the problem is, and this is the fun part, is that natural flavorings can have all sorts of like preservatives and stuff added to them, right? Mm-hmm. So, like because because of all these additives, which are not restricted by regulations artificial flavorings and natural flavorings end up not really being that different and while while you have to list all the food ingredients on a label flavorings do not have to list their ingredients so we're talking like preservatives emulsifiers additives solvents like all these things that you can basically use even in an organic food and you don't, and you don't, okay. and you don't have to like. You don't say have to any. say. Yeah, and I, there are some restrictions, so I guess. Um, let me see. Like natural flavors in organic foods are subject, like they can't have certain things, so they'll be better. So it's like they can't, they have to use non-petroleum-based solvents. They can't be irradiated. And they can't use flavor extracts from genetically engineered crops, which in and of itself is like a problematic, like limiting factor. Oh my God. I do not know if you can hear this noise, but no joke. Like there is an enormous truck, like seriously unloading 2000 pounds of glass right outside my window. So if anyone hears tremendous crashing sound, (laughs) that's just the universe's way of saying that it too is a fan of the podcast. So, (laughs) so. Are natural flavors really natural? Partially. Are they BS? Definitely. I I really think they're probably to be avoided. Okay. Is that possible? It would be pretty hard. Yeah. I I mean, it's definitely possible. But so what's your fascination, current event-wise? So New York... uh, city the mayor recently declared a health emergency because um and mandatory vaccinations for um four different zip codes in brooklyn because there have been uh more than 285 cases of measles since october um and so there there's it's a lot of controversy because can you force people to get vaccinated if for like a public health role. And so like part of the backing is from like a 1905 uh, Supreme court case in which like they did. And that was with regards to like smallpox. Um, Nobody's died in New York yet from the measles, but they um, have had um, a handful of people um, put in intensive care because of it. So primarily it's um, immigrant there's like an immigrant population that is worried of vaccinations and then also um and that's such a orthodox shame. Jewish community okay that is um resistant to it and so uh mayor de Blasio, from the looks of it kind of declared it because he had heard, there's like reports of like measles parties where like a child with measles is brought to other children 
who do not have measles, and they attempt to give them measles so that then they're immune from it. Oh, my God. It's like a chicken pox party, but with measles. Yeah, except for like one in in a thousand kids with measles is going to die, right? Is that their death rate? Right. Right. Like, it's, it's, yeah, it's unnecessarily high. So um, there's a lot of debate of whether or not they can compel people to do it. Um, There's a punitive... If it if you are found to be unvaccinated, then you have to get vaccinated, and if you refuse, it's like a thousand dollar fine. And so it's not trying to like fine people, but it's trying to let people know that there's like a serious issue and that they need to get vaccinated. Yeah. So there's a lot of controversy about um, freedom, like whether or not a, a city can force vaccination. So yeah. um, I'm sure that will play out in the courts, but. Um, it's yeah. it's really bad right now in New York and a couple of other places as well. I don't I don't love the idea of forcing it, but I I don't think there's another choice at this point. Right. So they're trying. So yeah, it was it was going to be okay for a few people to have exemptions until we lost our heads about it. And I, you know, mm-hmm. I just. How many kids have to die is like what I would like to know. Like, what, what's, cause that's basically what it's gonna be, you know? And I keep saying this. We need to give these people numbers. Yeah. We need to give them the actual numbers because there are occasionally extremely rare allergic reactions to vaccines. We need to let people know how often those happen and what that looks like. And then we need to let them know what their odds are. You know, I, I guess we can't give them the odds of getting the measles, but I feel like if you're like, hey, one in every 40 million children will have an adverse reaction to the vaccine. And one in every however many thousand kids who get the measles are going to die. I don't know. I just, I wish we, I wish we would just be more upfront with the actual numbers instead of just telling people that it's a hundred percent safe. I'm like, this is kind of my new, my new stance is like, let's stop saying it's a hundred percent safe and let's articulate exactly how safe it is, which I think is going to make it seem even safer. Cause like for me, nothing makes me freak out more than when someone's like, oh no, everything's fine. You don't need to worry about it. Cause then I feel like they're lying to me and they can't be trusted. The problem also Mm -hmm. is that people who feel like their children had behavioral changes from the vaccine, which is like, uh, just, uh, it's difficult because, like, that's when that's when those things tend to pop up in kids anyway. So, like, mm-hmm. statistically, if you vaccinate every single kid at, like, 18 months, like, yeah, some of them were going to become autistic then anyway. I think that's something. But that's going to, like, that doesn't help my argument because people who feel like there are behavioral changes, I think, are going to be the real ones that are hard to get. Because they're going to argue, yeah. like, well, those side effects aren't reported, so the CDC doesn't track that, so blah, 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 blah. But like, I don't, I don't know. I think we got to vaccinate all the kids now. Like, it's getting ugly out there. Yeah. So, so yeah. So New York testing, testing a new theory to see um, if it, it doesn't mean that there are people out roving around demanding your vaccination papers and um, and stuff. But it is, you know, if they find that you don't have it, they're trying to compel you to, to get it. Yeah. To underline the seriousness of the requirement. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man. Good times. <laughs> awesome. Great. Well, Laura, I think that's about enough bad patienting for me for one day. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you feel like we need to touch on? 
Thanks, Evan. Yeah, there's some <laughs> there's some guy who did our theme song. Also, it's come to my attention that certain of our listeners would like to submit questions, and we would like to make that possible. So I don't know how a phone works if it's not an iPhone, and I, I realize that that's problematic, but I wanted to let everyone know that you can record <clears throat> excuse me, a voice memo on your iPhone, and you can email it to hello at thebadpatient.com, and we will play your question on the air unless we think you're punking us, in which case we won't. But probably <laughs> probably we will anyway because we'll think it's funny. So you can send us your questions, and we will answer them. And we have gotten listener questions in the past, right? Remember our varicose vein episode? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, by the way, yep. is something that Laura and I will now never do because – Ain't nobody shooting plastic into these veins, okay, which is basically how they fix it. <laughs> or they can tie it off or whatever. It's fine. It's great. If you want to do it, it's great. It's safe. It's great. We're not doing it, Laura and I, because we're not, <laughs> we're not sadists, but like you do it if you want to do it. It's great. So you can send us a question. You can, uh, you can email your thoughts. I don't know. You can send us a horoscope at hello at thebadpatient.com. We're on Twitter at thebadpatient. And you can listen online wherever you get your podcasts or directly on our website at unsurprisinglythebadpatient.com. Until next time, we are a bad patient. <laughs>